0: Hello, and welcome to the So, You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So, You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land levers. Welcome to today's show. Who held the baby octopus for ransom? Squidnappers. How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? Tentacles. Ten tickles. My guest today is Dr. Chelsea Bennis, aka Octogirl. She is a true field biologist and octopus researcher. Join us as Chelsea dives into the world of these tentacled creatures, their mating behaviors, and how she spent over 400 hours underwater studying them. Chelsea also shares some excellent tips for aspiring grad students and how anyone can become involved in octopus research anywhere in the world as a community scientist. Please enjoy. Chelsea, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am really excited to chat with you today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about octopus.
0: Yeah, octopuses. So I actually went to your talk uh, at the Marmel Science Center and that's where I learned that it is octopuses and not octopi. That is correct. But <laughs> that was very funny. Was that like, a is it still a huge debate in the community? It is still a
1: huge debate in the community. And yeah, I get that question a lot, but it's always fun to educate everyone on the plural of octopuses. Big debate. Uh, some people will say octopi but you'll never hear a scientist say octopi. We will say octopuses, octopods,
0: octopodies. Okay, I love it. <laughs> so I want to learn more about how you got started, but I want to dive right into your octopus research because it really is fascinating. And you have your PhD studying octopuses, and you spent more than 400 hours underwater just studying their behavior, which is a lot of time underwater, yes. watching watching octopuses. So could you tell me a little bit how your research was conducted and what your research was? I know you were looking at the uh, common octopus and the Atlantic long-arm octopus.
1: Sure. So my research is in South Florida at a really popular dive site called Blue Heron Bridge, Phil Foster Park. So that's part of the Lake Worth Lagoon in South Florida. And it's a very shallow dive site, very popular for the biodiversity there. I was specifically interested in the diversity of octopuses there. And was diving there even before I started the octopus research. And noticed that there are Two different species that you mentioned the common octopus and the Atlantic longarm octopus in high abundance and my uh, PhD advisors and myself were wondering well how are these two species coexisting and not competing for resources and so that's where we got the big research question and I looked at the resource use and how these two species were coexisting at this South Florida lagoon. That's a pretty big question. In science, we would like to break up these big questions into smaller, specific questions. So as you mentioned, I did a lot of octopus behavior. And it's really exciting, and it's definitely very important to study animal behavior because you can get a lot of information from photos and underwater video. So that was a big part of my research. I broke that up into five specific questions. So we first wanted to know, well, what resources are the two species using? Are they different or are they the same to help them coexist? So I looked at the two species spatial distribution, their habitat association for an octopus's home. We like to call them their dens. So I was looking at what types of substrates were the octopus is using to construct their dens? but also what was the the surrounding environment that the octopuses were living in? I also looked at their activity times. So are these two species active at different times of the day? I looked at their diets. And then lastly, I looked at their foraging strategies. What were their different foraging behaviors the octopuses use? And what types of substrates did they forage on to find their food? Very exciting questions. And I definitely call myself a field biologist. So I like to be in the water. This was really a great project for me to be field intensive underwater to actually answer these research questions in the octopus's natural environment.
0: So how did you study these? I mean, 400 hours is a lot of time underwater. However, when you're talking about looking for and observing wild animals, it's really not that much time because... It just it, because animal behavior just requires a lot of time and dedication. Mm-hmm. And did you set up cameras and have to go through the footage later?
1: Oh, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of video footage and thankfully we've got the fast forward button to kind of speed up the video process a little bit. For the first research question, looking at their spatial distribution, I actually had a Garmin GPS device that I would put in my dive float, or my dive flag, and that would pretty much follow me when I was diving underwater, and so while I would swim underwater searching for octopuses, I would have this GPS device following me. Once I found an octopus in its den, since this is a shallow area, I was able to safely come up, ascend to the surface, and I would mark a waypoint, or I would mark that GPS location of where I saw that octopus den, and I did this for three years. So I would mark the location that I would find the common octopus dens, and then I would mark the locations where I would find the Atlantic long dens, and then I would take those points and I would overlay them on the map so I could see, all right, are these two species dens in different areas at this lagoon? or are they living right next to each other? So I was able to use GPS markings to answer that spatial distribution question. For habitat association, what I did is I took a quadrat, a very common tool used in ecology. And so it was just a square PVC pipe. And I would lay that square, it's a known area over the octopus's den. And then I would take a photo of that area I would then put this into a software program where random points were overlaid. And so this is the not-so-fun part when you got to stare at a computer screen. Sometimes it's all sand that you're looking at, but I had to code for if these random points landed on rock, sand, could be sponge or algae. And after doing that for lots of photos, I could then get an idea of the different frequencies or percentages of substrate that were made up for each octopus. So I could see if the octopuses, if their dens were different substrates or if they were living in the same substrates. And then this brings me to the, the video question, looking at all the videos. So a lot of video was used to look at the octopus's activity times. And if you want to get uh, an idea, or if you want to know when an animal is active, you have to monitor the animal for 24 hours. You can't selectively go out there and say like, all right, I was diving at 1 p.m. and the octopus was not active, but then I did another dive at 6 p.m. and it was active. So you have to make sure that you have information or data for all 24 hours. And I really didn't want to dive at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. in the morning. So (laughs) (laughs) with the help, I was able to develop a 24-hour octopus camera. So I called this the OMG, the Octopus Monitoring Gadget. (laughs) What this was, it was a GoPro inside this larger PVC pipe housing. And it had to be a larger housing because you have the GoPro, but then behind the GoPro, you have an external battery. GoPro life is usually only two hours, and it may be even less if you're just continuously recording. So we had to make sure that I could record for 24 hours. So I've got a large external battery behind it to make sure the GoPro stays on. And I also had a red, a red LED light. And this red light was important for nighttime footage. So I want to make sure that octopuses do their natural foraging behaviors, since that's what I'm interested in looking at their natural activity times. Octopuses are insensitive to red light, so red light was used to make sure we saw these natural foraging behaviors. So I went through over 1,000 hours of video to figure out when these two species were active.
0: So much video. Yeah, so that's why I said
1: earlier. That fast forward button was nice, but you got to be careful. You can't fast forward the video too fast because octopuses can quickly leave their dens and that's valuable information, you know, when they're leaving and returning to their dens to forage. So that's what I was looking at. So I had to be careful and definitely observe uh, when they were coming and going. Where I left it underwater for... You know, sometimes over 24 hours. And then lastly, I would follow octopuses on foraging events with my own camera, and sometimes they would forage, you know, for two to three hours. I would follow an octopus. And again, this was really important for the study location. Since Blue Heron Bridge, Phil Foster Park, is a shallow dive site, I'd say an average depth of about 10 feet it allowed me to get all this dive time underwater and I was able to collect all this information about octopus behavior.
0: That's really cool. You said you were following them while they were foraging. They didn't mind this diver behind them with the camera and bubbles coming out of their tank following them around while they're hunting?
1: No, and usually some octopuses would be you know, a little skittish or shy at first. But another plus to this dive site, since it's popular, octopuses, they get acclimated or they know divers are not their predators. And usually they'll mm. they'll come out and do their, their natural foraging behaviors. Also, I would stay a good distance away from the octopus to not disturb it in its natural foraging behaviors. Mm. Uh, but sometimes you do have to be patient. This is definitely a uh, Tested my patience with the octopuses, making sure that I waited until they did their natural foraging behavior. So sometimes I would wait by an octopus's den, I don't know, sometimes like 30 to 60 minutes before they would finally come out and forage. Just hanging out underwater, trying not to get distracted by other cool things that are happening around, but... (laughs) Yeah and another another important thing about the research is that octopuses have a lot of predators and we try to stay when we're diving. we try to stay low to the bottom or the substrate almost at like the octopus's eye level because um, mm-hmm. usually if you're snorkeling or scuba diving above them, they kind of see like maybe uh, if a fish was in a water column and swimming right above the octopus, that startles the octopus and they will go inside their den to hide so also making sure you know understanding the animal's behavior and me down close to the substrate and not scaring the octopus to make sure that it will come out of its den.
0: Mm, That's a really good point your behavior wasn't predatorial as well. So in addition to them already being familiar with scuba divers, you were modifying your own behavior so that you could watch theirs.
1: Yes, exactly. And it's definitely a better view for observing and recording the octopuses foraging behaviors as well.
0: Mm, That makes sense. And we were talking about foraging behaviors what do they eat and what are some of the behaviors that you were looking for are they reaching down into crevices and pulling out clams or what are they doing
1: yes for the diets common method to figure out an octopus's diet is to collect the prey remains the different types of shells or maybe pieces of exoskeleton from around the opening of the octopus's den so this is very common for the common octopus and that's a good mm-hmm. way to, if you're ever snorkeling or scuba diving and you're trying to search for an octopus, a good way to find an octopus's den is to look for shells kind of gathered around a hole. And they'll just <laughs> usually eat the item and, and spit it out right outside their opening. So what I would do for the common octopus is that I would find its den and I would collect newly discarded shells. And then I'd, use, I'd either photograph those or I would take those back to the lab and try to ID them to the, the genus and species of the animal. However, this didn't work all the time, especially for the Atlantic long arm. So the Atlantic mm. long arm doesn't leave prey remains around its sandy hole or den because that might attract predators. And so I had to use multiple methods to collect the diet. So I used the method of collecting the prey remains around their den if they were there. And this was another great way to collect it was the video. So the OMG that was deployed in front of the octopus's den, I was able to capture video of them bringing prey back to their den or spitting it out. So that video helped it. Um, Also... When I was following the octopus on foraging events, sometimes I like to call it like them eating on the go or eating on the swim, where they will forage, grab a prey item and spit it out, but then they'll keep foraging and grab another prey item. Sometimes I would be following the octopus and they would spit out a bivalve or crab carapace, and I would quickly have to grab it in the water column before you know the current took it away. So I used multiple (laughs) methods to figure out the diet of these two species. And it was really exciting because we don't know much about the Atlantic longarm octopus, and this was actually the first study on the diet for this species.
0: So what did you find? Was it similar to the common octopus
1: i'll first start with the common octopus and the common octopus kind of is a generalist eating eating a little bit of everything but the common octopus did eat more bivalves like clams and then it also ate gastropods like conchs and then Mm -hmm. it did eat crustaceans so the three categories that i looked at were bivalves gastropods and crustaceans. The common octopus also ate different types of crabs and also small mantis shrimp, which was pretty cool to see. And so there was a little bit of overlap for the Atlantic long arm. This species uh, loved crustaceans. This octopus ate a lot of crabs and some mantis shrimp and actually only one bivalve. There was a little overlap in the two species diets, but I found out that the main prey category for the common octopus was bivalves. And the main prey category for the Atlantic arm was crustaceans.
0: Mm. So their favorite snacks didn't overlap.
1: Yeah, having a different food resource or a different diet definitely will help them coexist.
0: Very cool. I mean, you mentioned that and I know this from diving, like one of the best ways to find an octopus den is to kind of look and see if there's any remains. But you said the Atlantic longarm is a little bit tidier. Mm-hmm. Was it more challenging to find their dens because there was stuff laying about?
1: Yes, it's definitely more challenging. And from the second question, looking at their habitat association, we did see that the common octopus associates more with that rock rubble and structure it usually has structure or it needs structure to create its den whereas the atlantic long-arm octopus is a sand dwelling species so it can pretty much with its long arms create a burrow in the sand and that's its home and usually Hmm. the the opening of its den in the sand is about the size of a quarter or a little bit bigger and the hole that they create in the sand is about I'd say 12 inches deep maybe longer I haven't done too much work on work on that but they have they create these long sand tunnels where they can live inside and sometimes they'll actually create a tunnel and then pop out a different hole Hmm. Yeah, and so usually when I'm looking for the Atlantic long-arm octopus, and again, I'm usually close to the bottom, kind of like scanning the top of the substrate, I usually look for two eye stalks or two big eyes sticking up out of the sand. That's usually, <laughs> that's usually how you see them. They have really big eyes, and so I look for those eyes sticking out of the sand, or this octopus will do what I call the tripod stands. And so this kind of gets into the different foraging behaviors that the species do. So the Atlantic long arm is a smaller species than the common octopus.
0: But when you say smaller, how big does it get? I mean, you mentioned their, their den is like the size of a quarter.
1: Yes. So the, the mantle length of this animal and, okay, you have the eyes of the octopus, and behind the eyes and the head of the octopus is that sac. That sac mm-hmm. is called the mantle. And so the length of a man- the mantle of the Atlantic long arm, when it's in a full adult, is only like two inches.
0: And mm. Yeah, these are tiny guys. They're
1: tiny. And so they're really small animals, and they're called the Atlantic long arm because, well, their arms are really long. (laughs) Their mantle's (laughs) only two inches, but their arms can be six to eight times that length. Really skinny. Mm. And so they use them for creating their dens in the sand, but they also use them for different foraging behaviors, such as the tripod stance that I talked about. So this is when the animal stands up really tall, On all its arms, and I like to compare it to a lifeguard tower. You know, lifeguards (laughs) sit up in those towers to kind of survey the beach and survey the water. And so we think that the octopus is using this tripod stance before and during foraging events to survey its area for predators, but also maybe potential areas where
0: there may be prey. Wow, that's really cool. Then conversely, how big does the common octopus get? What's one of its more unique hunting or foraging strategies?
1: Yeah, so for the common octopus at Blue Heron Bridge, the lagoon that I study at, I'd say the mantle length for that animal was around 8 to 10 inches, but it Mm -hmm. can get to be larger than this. So I see a lot of juveniles in the Lake Worth Lagoon. The common octopus can be 8 to 9 inches but can grow larger and you usually see this species larger when it's out on coral reefs. Their arms are shorter for this species, usually three to five times the mantle length. They're shorter, mm-hmm. they're thicker, and so it looks really goofy if this animal tries to act like the Atlantic longarm. So another <laughs> behavior that the Atlantic longarm will do is called flounder swimming. So that we have a flounder or a flatfish in the area um, that the Atlantic long arm will mimic. So it will pull its long arms around and have this flat flounder-like shape and swim or mimic this flatfish. When the common octopus tries to do this and it's just a bigger octopus with thicker arms, it doesn't really do it as great. So it has <laughs> other tactics that it uses to hunt and to also avoid predators. And one of, my, one of my favorite behaviors um, might be it's called the moving rock trick. And so the, the common octopus, if it doesn't have any structure or if it's trying to move across a sand plane, it will make itself look like a little ball or a little rock and it will move across the sand and it looks like a little rock. So it'll pick up all arms besides two arms, and then it'll kind of walk with its two arms across the sandy substrate. And it, I don't know why, it always reminds me of like maybe Cinderella picking up her big dress, and then you see her little feet scurry across when she's, when she's in the ball around midnight. <laughs> I always I don't know why, I always think of that when I think of the moving the moving rock trick when the octopus is moving across sand.
0: I was thinking I was I was kind of envisioning like, you know, Looney Tunes, yes. like maybe the coyote as he like picks up things oh, and like hides yes. from Roadrunner. Yes. <laughs>
1: that's exact, it's a really fun, goofy behavior. I say goofy, but it's a great behavior. You know, it's part of camouflage that the animal is it has to move across the substrate and it cannot be seen by predators. So it mm-hmm. works. Another one that the two species do is they will masquerade or they will look like an object. They'll look like floating seaweed, whereas they may move across the substrate on two of their arms. And then other arms will be up in the water column, sometimes twisted or flared to look like algae that might be floating in the water column.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. One of the things that if anybody's not familiar with octopus, they are the masters of camouflage in the ocean, they can change the texture of their skin, and they can change the color to mimic most things, which is one of the other reasons why they're so challenging to find. Are all octopus, or at least the two that you studied, are they both equal in masters of camouflage? Or are there some octopus that are just better at camouflaging than others?
1: Let's see, that's a great question. For my species, both of them are excellent in camouflage, and they do have different tactics of camouflage, and that definitely relates to the environments that they're in, which I sort of touched on, but not in great detail. Octopuses that live in complex environments like coral reefs, like the common octopus, are masters of disguise. They have these complex environments and so they usually, they have these complex behaviors to match that where this behavior, this camouflage will not only be changing the color of their skin, but as you mentioned, changing the texture and also Mm -hmm. their body posture that I mentioned like with their arms twisting. So if they live in a complex uh, environment, they usually have really complex behaviors and they're excellent at camouflage. They need to be because they have lots of predators, so they need to make sure that they survive and are not detected by predators. For the Atlantic longarm, it's a sand-dwelling species. However, it still has some really cool and complex behaviors that you don't see maybe in the, the coral reef species. So it's just different behaviors, but still they're complex with the mimicking of the flounder, throwing the arms up to look like masquerade. There's another type of camouflage that we call flat camo or flat camouflage, where the octopus will sort of bury itself in the substrate, but you can still kind of see it, but then it will put on texture and color of the sand. So that's still a really neat, complex behavior.
0: That is so fascinating. Now, what's the average lifespan for octopuses? I know it's not very long. Does that change from species to species?
1: There yes, it does change from species to species, but in general, octopuses are relatively short lived. So the two species that I study live for about a year or maybe a year and a half. So Mm -hmm. not very long. Um the longest living octopus think is the giant Pacific octopus. And that's about five years, but still for a very large animal, that's a relatively short time.
0: hmm Yeah, I mean conversely, you think about giant Pacific octopus. Other creatures that size are what? Whales, dolphins, they have lifespans as long as humans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was always struck by that because it's this amazing creature. I mean, octopus and other cephalopods are just super smart. They have these amazing features and then their lifespan is really, really short. So I was always kind of blown away by that. So you grew up in Ohio and now you're a octopus biologist. Did you always know you wanted to work in the ocean?
1: For the most part, yeah, really early on. So grew up in Ohio, right on Lake Erie. So water has always been a really big part of my life. I've always loved the beach. I've always loved the water. Growing up, we took family vacations to Florida. So I got exposed to the mm-hmm. ocean there. And I actually did a snorkeling trip in high school to the Virgin Islands then. I got to see all of the ocean animals that I was reading about in textbooks. I finally got to see in real life, and I just enjoyed it so much. My first, I guess, exposure to marine biology was in high school, and after that, I got really interested. I actually started my own saltwater aquarium at home, so that was a lot of fun getting you know that experience but I didn't go into marine biology right away I always like it was always there like I want to be a marine biologist for my undergraduate degree I went to the Ohio State University and I started working in freshwater systems I was part of the limnology lab so I was looking at predator prey relationships between a fish and a zooplankton first started gaining you know, research experience in my undergraduate career, working in freshwater systems, working in Lake Erie, working at Ohio's fish hatcheries, uh, just to gain more experience in research. And I decided I took another marine biology course while I was at Ohio State, and decided that this is this is what I wanted to do. So then, after my undergraduate degree, I actually moved from freshwater to saltwater to gain experience. And that's when I moved down to Florida. I did a, a few different internships, but the first one was in Florida, the Florida Keys at sea camp as a marine science instructor.
0: What was that like working as a marine science instructor at sea camp?
1: It was great. I loved the experience. Like I mentioned, I love being in the water. I'm a field biologist. So it was great to finally be in the environments that I wanted to be in, learning about the mangroves, learning about, um, you know, the coral reef habitats, and I finally got to learn more about these and then teach them to younger students. We, the marine science instructors were in charge of taking the students on different lessons, so we would take them out on boats and we would go to coral reefs, we would do a short lesson on you know, coral reef ecology, and then the kids mm-hmm. would get to snorkel at the coral reef to actually observe what was going on, so having that, that hands-on experience, not just reading about it in a textbook, and it was really exciting to see them not just hear about it from me, but they actually get to see it themselves. And that also helped with my background, learning more about the environments that I really wanted to learn about before going to graduate school.
0: That's really awesome. Did you know that you wanted to go to graduate school when you initially moved to Florida, or were you just kind of wanting to get your feet wet in the field and figuring out what that may look like?
1: I didn't know that I wanted to go to graduate school but to be a competitive applicant when applying to graduate school I wanted more experience. All my experience had been in freshwater ecology and I wanted to learn about marine ecology and gain more experience to put on my resume before applying to graduate school. So I did the internship in in the Florida Keys but then after that I actually did an internship and a research assistantship up at Woods Hole, Massachusetts with the Marine Biological Laboratory with cephalopod research. So that's kind of when it all started, the cephalopod camouflage research. And that was two different projects I worked on. One was looking at cuttlefish camouflage, and the other project was looking at male squid behavior.
0: Mm. really quick uh, we've said cephalopod twice now and I guess we should probably break that down yeah. a little bit so cephalopod is a we'll just call it a subgrouping of the overarching group of mollusks and so these and mollusks are generally shelled animals and cephalopods are those that have shed their shell uh, so this is squid cuttlefish octopus the nautilus how does the nautilus get grouped into this I don't understand
1: So they definitely have, you know, the the cephalopods would be separated out. So nautilus are actually in their own category. So you have cephalopods as a big group, cephalo meaning head, pod meaning foot. So the head of the Mm. animal is attached to the foot. In the case of cephalopods, Mm. this foot is modified into arms and tentacles. So these similar characteristics group them together. So overall you have cephalopods but then you can break them up into a grouping called nautiloids. So the nautiloids are the mm. nautiluses and coleoids are the cuttlefish, squid and octopuses that are more closely related that do not have that external shell.
0: All right. Thank you for that clarification. Yes. <laughs> so so you're in Woods Hole and you're doing cephalopod research. Did you apply thinking like that sounds interesting or were you already kind of leaning towards like during your exposure in at sea camp or in your other research I want to do cephalopods I, I really like these guys
1: yeah for me it was more the path of this sounds interesting or this sounds like a really cool project I really had no idea about cephalopods cuttlefish and camouflage or anything And Mm. I was just, before I left Ohio State, I was applying to different internships. So I was applying to that C-Camp internship, and I also applied to this Marine Biological Laboratory internship. And when I had to pick the project I wanted to work on at the Marine Biological Laboratory, I was looking through them, and I just saw cuttlefish, and I saw camouflage, And I looked at what this lab was doing, and I said, wow, this sounds pretty cool. And I just decided to apply, and they accepted me. So I said, okay, let's go. So at first, I really was not focused on cephalopods. I've always been interested in animal behavior, and this was such a great group of animals to gain more exposure for, you know, complex animal behavior. So not till after Mm -hmm. that internship, then I, it wasn't then I really went and focused on cephalopods. But I did take a break from cephalopods for my master's.
0: What did you study for your master's?
1: For my master's, I looked at uh, the sargassum community. So the sargassum Mm -hmm. is this large floating brown Uh, algae that you see along Florida's coast it's uh, relative to kelp except we have the the float there is benthic sargassum or sargassum that's attached to the bottom however the the two different types of sargassum I was looking at just kind of floats on the surface and it's kind of like a floating habitat for a bunch of different animals fish shrimp uh, juvenile sea turtles, and a lot of larger animals and sports or game fish that people are interested in. They use this habitat for their prey, so larger fish like, like mahi. And so I moved back to, uh, it still was in the realm of animal behavior, and so I looked at how habitat architecture, or how complex the habitat was, And how that influenced habitat selection of different fish and different shrimp. Hmm. Yes, so different from cephalopods, but like I mentioned, I'm really interested in animal behavior ecology. And so I was interested in looking at how these animals selected their habitat and why this sargassum was very important for animals to live in. Whether it was living, whether the animals lived in it, their entire life so there's a, a really unique fish called the sargassum fish and it's called that mm-hmm. because it looks exactly like the seaweed they spend their entire life in it and they are adapted for living in the sargassum so the complexity of the sargassum having it be out in the water is very important for this animal but other animals or fish that use this sargassum such as juvenile file fish and the shrimp. It's also very important for them, but maybe just for part of their life.
0: It's really interesting. And I, I always associate sargassum with sea turtles as well. Yeah. When they hatch, they go out to big, big, sar- big patches of sargassum to use them as camouflage. And then they also eat some of those critters that you're just talking exactly. about in order to sustain themselves. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Also for listeners, sargasm is super fun. Uh, if you see it on the beach, a lot of people are like grossed out by it.
1: Give it a good shake.
0: Yes, that's one of my very favorite things to do. Just see what falls out. <laughs> it's always something cool.
1: Yeah, I found um, <laughs> small seahorses, pipefish. There's a really cool sargassum nudibranch or sea slug that lives in there. There's just a bunch of cool animals that use this, the seaweed as a home. A lot of people, like you said, are like grossed out about it. They're like, oh, it smells bad. But I'm like, this is such a cool floating habitat for, mm-hmm. a, you know, a large number of animals.
0: Mm-hmm. It's an important part of the food web. That's right. It'll provide... Good entertainment if you're brave enough to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. So I mean, so you're up at Woods Hole and you're studying cuttlefish. What brought you? why why back to Florida?
1: I was applying to different different graduate programs, and I've always been really interested in symbiotic relationships. So although I worked with cuttlefish and squid, I was also interested in uh, the symbiotic relationship of corals and their zooxanthellae, but also other cnidarians such as the sea anemone and clownfish, and I was looking for a professor that worked with these symbiotic relationships. One of the professors happened to be at Florida Atlantic University, and so I reached Mm. out to him applied to florida atlantic university to go to graduate school and got accepted because he was initially working with anemones and clownfish so i thought that's what i was going to do but he <laughs> emailed me back and said i'm not doing that work anymore i'm actually looking at the sargassum community and again, <laughs> i said <"Well>, what's that <laughs> And I was like, well, well, let me let me do some research. I had him send me some of the papers, scientific papers he published, so I could get an idea of his research questions and what his lab was asking. A lot of the work was predator-prey relationships, symbiotic relationships that were happening in the sargassum community. And I said, well, this isn't necessarily the system that I planned on working in. However, it's the same research questions that I'm interested in, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> so I did.
0: Yeah. That's funny. It's actually it's a really good highlight of not just like randomly applying to graduate school and like kind of seeing where you get in, but like what are you interested in and who is studying it and opening that door of communication because you do work really closely with your graduate school advisor and you want to have that, that door open and for them to tell you, I'm not actually working on what you think I'm going to be working on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So that's definitely one of the pieces of advice that I would give to students that want to get involved in research or are applying to a graduate program. It's really important to do your research on the professors or the lab that you want to work in. Make sure their research questions align with yours. Make sure you think that the research is interesting before going there because it may not be in the system that you ultimately want to work in, but if it's similar or the same questions, it's still a great opportunity for you.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. You get your master's.
1: Yes. Did you know you want to get a PhD? I
0: did. Yep. Okay. I
1: knew the ultimate goal for me was a PhD.
0: Okay now why did you leave the sargasm and come back to the mollusk world or the cephalopod world more specifically? Yeah
1: so it was towards the end of my master's degree that the scientist at Marine Biological Laboratory uh, Dr. Roger Hanlon that was working with the cephalopods he actually came down to Florida to check out Phil Foster Park Blue Heron Bridge my study site And that's kind of how Mm -hmm. all of the research question and the Ph.D. project sparked. He said, hey, I'm coming down to Florida to dive this location to look at the Atlantic arm octopus. Like I previously mentioned, not a lot was known about this species. And it's a sand-dwelling animal, so it's really hard to find. So we actually have a location where we're able to find and learn more about this animal. So he wanted to check it out. He knew I was down here so I said yes I want to come diving and look at octopuses so I did that we had a few dives together and we were discussing how there was the common octopus was here and the Atlantic long octopus was here and like what a great research question it would be to answer what resources they're using and how are these two animals able to coexist in this area and After that, I said, would would you like to be one of my co-advisors for this project? He said yes. I talked to my main advisor at Fort Atlantic University. He said yes. And that's how I got back to octopuses.
0: Amazing. That's really cool. So you, I mean, this was an internship that you had had at Woods Hole and you, and you kept in contact with your advisors and, and you had left in a good enough relationship to reach out to you and be like, I'm going to be in Florida. <laughs> Let's go diving.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's great that we're talking about this because it, it keeps hitting on the advice that I want to give to students that want to pursue a career in not necessarily marine biology, but just a career in science in general or a career in research. Um getting involved, getting experience and networking or keeping those connections. I keep to that connection with the scientist that I had at the marine biological laboratory. And it had been years since I had worked with him closely, but we kept in contact. And he thought about me when he was down here and we were able to reconnect and actually uh, work on this research project.
0: That's a really cool story. And it's such a good point. It's definitely applicable in, you know, the marine science, the science field in general, but I think any career, any networking that you can do, it, you never know when it can pay off, Absolutely. like knowing people and having different connections and different opportunities and just saying yes, helps a lot. Really cool moment. So kind of brought you full circle. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. You've had a lot of really cool experience. Do you still have your Etsy shop?
1: I do. I do some octopus or ocean-inspired jewelry, but there's also stickers, cups, different octopus swag that (laughs) I make or I collaborate with different companies on. And this merchandise supports the octopus research that I do. I do a lot of community outreach. I do a lot of ocean festivals to promote Mm -hmm. my octopus research but also to promote marine conservation so how do octopuses fit into this why are octopuses important in many marine food webs and just educating Mm -hmm. the public not only do i do the research but i also want to translate that research not just to scientists but to the community so the community understands why research is so important and why we need to protect marine environments.
0: Absolutely. And I think that also brings up a point that I talk about a lot on the podcast is it's really wonderful to do research, but if it just stays in the scientific community, it's not worthless, but it's not super valuable. And if you get it out and you can translate it so that everyday people can know about it and can care, that's really when your research becomes super valuable. Yeah. So you do this in a couple of different ways. I know you're the assistant director of FAU's Ascend program, and you're also a scientific writer for Octonation. Could you explain what those programs are and what your role is there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. For the ASCEND program, it's a big acronym, and what it stands for is Advancing STEM Community Engagement Through Neuroscience Discovery. This program (laughs) is, yeah, this program is based out of Florida Atlantic University's Brain Institute, and you're probably thinking, how did this girl get into a neuroscience program? And... (laughs) The main reason is that we drive these messages through neuroscience. However, it's all about STEM community engagement. And so mm-hmm. I did a lot of uh, a lot of education teaching classes as a master's mm-hmm. and PhD student. I did a lot of outreach events. I still do a lot of outreach events. For my research, I was brought on as the assistant director for this program to help develop it So we can teach students, middle school students, and we're trying to expand the program to high school students. We want to engage these young students to be interested in science, so in focus on neuroscience, but we incorporate STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and math. We want to bring those STEM tools in when we're teaching about neuroscience. It's a really cool, unique program through the university because the program is led by trained scientists. So the middle schoolers get to interact with neuroscientists that are doing cutting edge research at the Brain Institute. They get to ask the scientists what it's like to be a scientist. What's your everyday life in the lab? Or they ask them, what are the new discoveries or what's happening in science? So it's really cool for the students to get that perspective of what it is to be a neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. And I help oversee the program. And we're taking another really cool approach with the SEM program. We have three different teams led by neuroscientists. It's a great opportunity for graduate students and postdocs. So if you have a lot of research experience, you can join the SEND program and you can gain teaching experience or you can gain other experiences in community outreach. So mm. our three teams are Talks and Tours. They lead <laughs> our education lessons. The next one is Media Mavens. They lead our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, they also make really cool short science videos with fun topics about your brain and like how much energy it needs, what goes on in your brain when you get sick. Really cool information, not just for middle schoolers, but all anyone that wants to learn about neuroscience at all ages. And then lastly, our third team is virtual voyagers. With that STEM, that technology that we're trying to incorporate is that we use virtual and augmented you know, reality applications. We'll use the uh, like AR, VR headsets. We're making 360 videos to teach science lessons, maybe a virtual neuroscience classroom, but also kids get to see a neuron or a brain cell in 3D and spin it around and move it. So we're trying to bring that technology into our neuroscience lessons to engage students. Those are the three teams that we have that are part of our program. And so collectively, it makes it a really nice and unique program.
0: Very cool. Could you explain what Octonation is? Yeah. <laughs> so for,
1: for Octonation, it is a 5013C nonprofit and its mission, our goal, is to educate the public on how amazing and how awesome octopuses are. Uh, so we are there to educate about cephalopods, why they are important to the community, but to also engage again the the future marine biologist. We are getting ready to launch the new website. So right now, Octonation is on Facebook. And Instagram pretty much daily giving the community information about all cephalopods and the wide range of cephalopods, what they look like, their habitats, their behaviors, everything, so we can let everyone know how great and important these animals are for. The different marine environment so we want to take mm. our social media platforms and we want to make a nice website that everyone can go to to get all their cephalopod information because right now one doesn't exist for what we're going to do and so we are dropping different octopus species profiles so you can learn all about the different species. Right now there's around or a little bit over 300 species of octopuses. We're not starting with that many, but we are dropping a nice number to engage everyone to learn about these really amazing animals. We'll have species profiles. We'll have octopus. I like to call it the 101 facts that you get to learn all about the (laughs) octopuses, uh, their biology and everything. But then we're also going to create education resources for educators using their classrooms for students Mm. that maybe would just want to download to learn more information. And also one of my uh, goals is to create a highlight page for octopus researchers to tell their stories and also an area where we can give scholarships to young marine biologists that will help fund their research projects. My role in all of this is being a scientific writer and also helping with the education materials. Since my background is in octopus behavior and I have a lot of educational background from teaching and being the assistant director of Ascend, I'm applying all this information to my role as part of Octonation.
0: Amazing. That is a lot that's coming. that's (laughs) about to come from Octonation. So I'm really excited. It's
1: going to be great. I'm really excited. And the launch date is October eighth. Very fitting. So that's the date that we're shooting for to launch the website. So very, very soon.
0: Yay, that's so exciting. Well, I will definitely put a link to Octonation and everything else that we've kind of chatted about today in the show notes. So if listeners just want to link to click, they can go find it or just Google Octonation. It's very easy to find as well. Yes. <laughs> awesome. As we kind of wrap up here, I have a couple more questions. One of my very, very favorite questions to ask is what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? Mm-hmm. And as someone who has spent 400 hours underwater <laughs> just for her PhD research project, plus, you know, all your internships, you have a lot of field stories to choose from, I am sure. Yeah. So just like one or two that kind of popped to mind could be like the best day you just had like the most amazing interactions with animals. Or it could be like, you know, everything kind of went wrong. And it's a really great story now.
1: <laughs> yes. Wow, there are a few. One of them that like comes to that comes to mind right away is doing field work. And people always ask me about interactions with octopuses. And this was when I was collecting the prey remains from this one common octopus in its den. Mm-hmm. And so as I, as I stated earlier, these octopuses like to scatter their prey remains around their den. And sometimes they will actually use them to cover the den hole or kind of barricade them in so predators can't come in. And so here I was removing (coughs) shells or prey remains from the den opening, like either I pulled them away from the opening to to photograph them, to then ID them later. And as I was doing this, the octopus was reaching out its arm, trying to get them back and (laughs) trying to cover up the hole and Finally the octopus came all the way out and actually came towards me and jumped on my camera. And I was like, "Oh, all right. Well, I guess if I'm checking out your shells, you can check out my camera. That's fine." And so kind of <laughs> crawled around the camera for a little bit and then swam back to its home. I took my pictures and then I placed the shells in front of the octopus so then the octopus could could decorate it's home again. So that was a really fun experience. <laughs> Another time, my dive buddy, her, her scuba gauges, so the gauges that tell you how much air you have, uh, the depth that you're at, they were kind of dangling in the water column. And for some reason, the octopus saw this And then swam at the gauges, jumped on them and kind of like hung on them for a little bit. We watched the octopus, then the octopus, you know, detached itself and then swam back to its dead. So those are just some funny, funny and fun experiences there.
0: (laughs) It's fun when your research uh, reacts back to you, right? (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yep. (laughs) That's absolutely amazing. One of the things that I like to leave audience with at the end of each episode is a conservation ask for them to go forth into the world and do. And you have quite a lot of base to pull from. So what what would you like the audience to take from today's episode or go forth and do to protect octopus in our oceans?
1: Well, one thing is, you know, this is very broad, but respecting the environment. So respecting the animals that are there i also want to learn about their natural behaviors in their environment to make sure that we can protect these animals and so i want to make sure that everyone respects the environment and these animals i don't go in there and harass the animals i don't try to pick them up so just respecting nature and also you know making sure when we say scuba diving you're not touching all you're doing is leaving leaving bubbles so we're not leaving trash Or anything in the water or anything on the beaches. So just being mindful and respecting Mother Nature. Even the littlest things will help also transfer that information. If you can tell others, you know, and educate, I think that's really important as well. I do a lot of community outreach. And if I can pass the message of marine conservation to someone else, and if they can pass that along to their friends or their family, that's really powerful too. Citizen science and I'd like to now refer to citizen scientists as community scientists or community science, <laughs> us working together to get marine conservation done. And I don't think people understand how important it is for them to help scientists. There's a lot of projects now that, you know, rely in some part on community scientists helping to gather data just to give the listeners, an example is that one of the research projects that I'm currently working on has to do with octopus body patterns and how octopus species have unique body patterns, and this can help identify the species. So, body patterns, you know, and I'm sure octopuses changing colors can be really confusing. Certain species look very similar. And so we're trying to figure out if there is a unique set of body patterns or body pattern components that will allow us to identify the octopus accurately. So this is definitely important to know for marine conservation, the population of the octopus species. You don't want to ID the wrong octopus and count them towards that. So this project calls for a lot of octopus photos from different mm-hmm. areas around the western Atlantic and like Caribbean area and scientists like we can't be everywhere every second and so mm-hmm. we are calling on relying on community scientists underwater photographers divers that have taken photos of octopuses in certain areas and saying hey have you seen this octopus like if you don't mind Would you like to help out with this research and allow us to use your photos when we analyze them for the data and this has been huge for this project community scientists contributing their underwater photographs pretty much is allowing us to do this research project letting everyone know that they're a part in science and they matter
0: absolutely now with these octopus photos Are you still collecting them, one? And two, if people have octopus photos, where should they go or who should they send them to?
1: Yes, we have just started this project. And so we are still collecting photos. You know, make sure that we have enough for a good research project. And if underwater photographers or divers have photos, if you're interested at all in helping out in octopus research or specifically this project, send me an email and I can give you more information on how, on how to help out.
0: Okay. I'll put a link to your email in the show notes as well. Anybody that's been doing some diving in the Western Atlantic or the Caribbean, go through your photos. Yeah, so
1: that's, yeah that's one project we're using photos for. The other one, we're looking for octopus photos in Japan, South Africa, Western Atlantic, and the Caribbean's. So
0: Yeah. You're encompassing a lot of ocean. What a cool project. And yes, you can't possibly hire or have enough scientists to make that happen.
1: Science takes a lot of time. And so collaborations are really important to try to produce these scientific results timely.
0: Absolutely. Very cool. What a cool project. Well, I'll definitely spread the word on that. That's exciting. If the audience wants to find you, connect with you, where's the best place to do that?
1: They can connect with me through my email that will be posted uh, with the podcast. You can also find me on Facebook under Octo Girl or on Instagram. My name is the Octo Girl. So I do educational posts on both social media pages. You can send me a direct message if you have any questions about a career in marine science, and science in general, how to get involved in marine science, how to pick a graduate school, how to look for internships, how to talk to a professor, pretty much anything. If you're if you're curious or you've got questions, send me a message. I'm always happy to help and mentor students.
0: Wonderful. Well, Chelsea, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Very welcome. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.